Um, but my name's Nick. I am the lead pastor here. Uh, I'm going to be getting us right into God's Word. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can open it to um, Luke chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 35 to 48. If you need one, these uh, gentlemen will be happy to, to get you one. Just raise your hand. We'll give one to you. So in the New Testament, it's, it's Matthew, Mark, then Luke's Gospel. Well, chapter 12, verse 35 is where we're going to begin. We'll read it, pray, and uh, we'll dive in. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he, he says this. Stay dressed for action, and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, Well, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light one. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. You could sense the intensity in that text. We're going to dive into it here in a moment, but let's, uh, let's ask the Lord's help. That we quiet our hearts, our minds. God, we ask that you would draw near to us now as we draw near to you. Who in the world are we that the King of Kings would show concern for us? Who am I that the Lord of of Lords would take pleasure in speaking? More than just speaking. To me, dying for me. Jesus, we gather this morning as we gather every morning around the cross. We know that the only reason we belong here is because of what you've done. 
So we thank you, and it's with great expectation that we uh, come to your words, spread out the table. I say we're hungry. Come and feed. It's in Jesus' name that I, I ask these things. Amen. Um, so this morning, we are going to talk about, um, deal with the subject of waiting. It's um, a subject in particular that's drawn out in this text, I think, and I'm going to show it to you. But the idea of waiting, uh, in particular, for the Lord, waiting uh, on the Lord, waiting for His return, for the return of Christ. Four things I want to look at with regard to this waiting. You'll see them in your handout. Uh, I'm just going to dive right in. I don't have time for a flashy introduction. Uh, first, we're going to look at its necessity. The, it's the necessity of this waiting. Second, we're going to look at its yearning. Third, its activity. And then fourth, uh, its end. So first, its necessity. In our text this morning, if you look at it again with me, uh, though Jesus has not yet died, risen, or ascended, he is still right there present with his disciples in the flesh. He is preparing them for his departure. He is preparing them for this impending reality where he is going to uh, return to the right hand of the Father and he is going to be asking his disciples to wait. Wait for his return. Wait till he comes again. Read verses 35 and 36 again with me. Stay dressed, he says, for action. And keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So waiting is to characterize the disciple, the Christian, the follower of Jesus in this age. As we're kind of in between, you know, we just celebrated Christmas. We're in between the first advent. We're longing for, waiting for the second, his return. But... As I came to this text and I look at Jesus' uh, exhortation of us here to wait, I, I couldn't help but think about how unpopular the idea is, right? I mean, is there anyone in this room who just, you know, gets off on waiting in lines? I've never heard a person talk about um, uh, themselves kind of enjoying or, or, or getting a thrill uh, out of waiting in Bay Area rush hour traffic, right? I said it's, it's kind of the opposite, right? We talk about it like the stuff of nightmares. Like, that's always on the ballot. Like, how do we, what's the program we can vote for that's going to get rid of that and fix that? How do we uh, avoid that? We don't like waiting. A 10-minute commute becomes an hour and a half. It's ridiculous, why do we have to do that? We don't like that. I know guys, uh, even in this church, are getting up at 5 a.m. just to try to avoid that, right? So I can hopefully get out on the roads before the rest of the city and get where I'm going. We don't like to wait. As I was thinking uh, about this idea, I, I actually thought of, um, I don't know how many of you know this book. It's, uh, it's a book that's put in your hands typically on graduation day. Right, at least I have a little note from one of my friends. 
you know, hey, congratulations, have a wonderful life. You know, this was my graduation from college. It was, uh, uh, it's Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go, right? Uh, kind of classic, little, little fun. I, I enjoy reading it to the kids. Uh, but it's kind of like, hey, look, life is out there. It's going to be awesome. Go get it. That's kind of what this book is about. But as you, as you read through, somewhere tucked in the middle, and I wanted to show you this, there's this kind of dreaded place where everyone is, they're looking depressed, they're looking dreary, even the colors, they're all kind of muted and dark. Like, oh dang, whatever this is, I don't want to be there. I feel like I saved my spot, but I don't know where it is now. Hold on. Yeah, this is church and we're reading Dr. Seuss. Hold on, hold on. Let me see if I find it. Oh, here it is. Let me read this to you. You can get so confused that you'll start in to race down long wiggled roads at a breaknecking pace and grind on for miles across weirdish wild space headed I fear toward a most useless place turn the page you see it and here's what he calls it the waiting place the waiting place and you you watch and all these people are just waiting waiting for something to happen waiting looking as if they're just kind of like robots just standing in line nobody enjoys this this looks horrible and you're almost sucked in until you turn the page and here's what he says no 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 that's not for you somehow you'll escape all that waiting and staying you'll find the bright places where boom bands are playing with banner flip-flapping, once more you'll ride high, ready for anything under the sky, ready because you're that kind of guy. And we read these sorts of things, right, with diploma in hand. I go, that's right. I am that kind of guy. The waiting place is not for me, sitting around kind of wondering what's going to come, depending on everything else to kind of do something for me. No, no, no. That's for the incompetent. That's for the uneducated. That's for the unsuccessful. Those are the kinds of people who are in the waiting place. I'm that kind of guy who's going to be off with my banner flip-flapping high or whatever he says, grabbing life by the horns, bringing it down, making it submit to me, making things happen. The waiting that's not for Nick Weber, and this is the sort of thing our culture feeds on. We see no place for waiting. We have no patience for it at all. Um, I'll give you one last example, just kind of humorous. I, um, I don't know how many of you have heard of Brian Regan. He's actually, to my knowledge, everything I've ever seen is... Um, Pretty clean comedian, uh, really funny. But he has this little uh, this little uh, bit that I remember seeing him do on Pop Tarts. Okay, uh, he's talking about how uh, he was pulling out you know Pop Tarts one day and he was going to get the the what did he say something like how do I get that pastry goodness in me and he's looking and uh, he realized that there are these instructions actually on the side of the Pop Tart. Uh, box, uh, not just for uh, the toaster, how to you know toast your pop tart, but actually there are microwave instructions on there. And here was kind of the thing that was so funny uh, to him and to me. He said, "You want to know how long it tells you to put the pop tart into the micro? You got it. You always watch this every night. Huh? Three seconds. Three seconds. He just stood back and he just got his punchline. Basically, is listen." If you don't have a minute and a half to toast your Pop-Tart the right way, if you need to get, you know, up, 
eating and out the door in three seconds flat, you might want to think about loosening up your schedule. You might, you might want to think about a life change. But, you know, it's funny, but underneath it, there is something that's uh, starting to be exposed in that about us. We live in a culture that needs microwave instructions for uh, a Pop-Tart. We, we live in a culture where a minute and a half with a toaster might just be too long for us. Just, what am I going to do? Twiddle my thumbs? I'll break out my phone and maybe I'll get some on Facebook. But I've got to be doing something. I, I'm not going to be waiting. Don't make me wait. And it's into that culture, it's into this context that Jesus is now going to speak to us. In our text. You know what he's going to say? You know what he's going to tell us we must do? Wait. <laughs> Wait. Now, when we stop and consider this idea of waiting biblically, what we realize is that it is uh, not unpopular, but it has always been biblical. It has always marked the people of God. It's always been God's call on us to wait for Him in one way or another. Whether it's His return or His present help, the, the help that He's going to bring. And, and it's kind of this ongoing uh, relationship that God has with us where He says, wait for me, trust in me. I will come for you. I will show up when you need Him. Wait. It's his continual injunction to us, and yet it's our continual problem that we don't, that we struggle with it, that we receive his word, his promise, what he's asking us to do, he lets us in on what he's planning to do, and then something goes on, and maybe you're even in that place right now in your life, something goes on in the circumstances, something goes on that's trying and testing and it doesn't seem to line up with what you thought God would do, with what you wanted God to do. And so then in that place of, of, of testing, there's this temptation. Why would I wait for God? He's ain't coming when I can take it into my own hands and fix it myself. I'm going to make something happen on my own. I'm not going to sit around waiting for a God who doesn't seem to care. But the thing we realize when we look at this in the scriptures is that every time we try to take it into our own hands, we always make it worse. We always make it worse. Um, just to give you a few examples from the scriptures, um, it's when Abraham and Sarah grow tired of waiting for the child of promise, Isaac. It's when they look and go, I don't, listen, I know God said that, I don't. I'm not seeing that coming anytime soon. It's in the breakdown of their waiting that they produce the child in the flesh, Ishmael. Or more examples, it's when Israel at the base of the mount is waiting for Moses. When he's up there, Mount Sinai, talking with God, receiving all the commandments and the law and all these things. It's, it's in the breakdown of that waiting as they're just kind of twiddling in their thumbs going, wait a minute, I, I was expecting more when we left all gloriously from Egypt and now here we are just waiting? For this guy somewhere up there in the clouds? 
It's in the breakdown of that that they craft for themselves a golden calf that they can worship. Something. Get me going so I can bow down to that. This Yahweh's gone and his little buddy Moses is gone. Idolatry. Or it's in the... Um, it's in that, that space between God's, uh, the bringing of God's kingdom. It's when Israel's kind of impatient with uh, God and his reign over them that they start begging for a king like the nations. And King Saul appears on the scene. It didn't go well for him or for Israel under him. But they wanted it. We're tired of waiting. We're tired of kind of the unknowns. Make it happen now. Every time we try to make it happen now, every time we abort on this waiting on, waiting for God, we make matters worse. If I could sum up this first point, I would say it like this. Waiting, in its biblical sense, is a faithful recognition of both who we are and who God is. And it's a humble acceptance of our current place in His unfolding plan. It is a full admission that we cannot work our own redemption and a full expectation that God in His time will. That last sentence is really important. It is a full admission that I can't work my own redemption and a full expectation that He can and will. In that space, we wait. I can't. He can. I'm waiting for Him. And hence, for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, waiting is essential. It's an essential component of the Christian life. It is a necessity. But now I want to move to uh, the second piece there. I want to talk about waiting and it's yearning. It's yearning. Um, For the disciple, for the Christian, we need to understand that our waiting is characterized and fueled by a, a yearning, actually. There is a longing in it, a hope in it. And you could kind of see that coming off of the 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 little summary definition I just gave you. There's a longing for the only one who can help. So in our waiting, there is desire. There is yearning. And I think this is important because um, I recognize that it's possible to wait for something in dread. Right? Like uh, if you're driving down the freeway and you're going a little fast because you're running late, uh, and then you see the lights of the cop come up behind you, you pull over, and that, that 30 seconds that you're on the side there, you know, of the, of the freeway on the side, just feels like forever. You are waiting in dread. What is he going to say? How fast was I really going? Is he going to be nice today? Mean? I don't know. Hello, officer. You know, or waiting in dread like the woman waiting for the hospital to administer the first round of chemo. Like I know it's coming. You know, February 3rd, that's my appointment. Or like the, the kid, you know, waiting in dread for the last day of summer and the first day of school. Oh no! No, I hated that day. You know, I wanted to just linger in summer as long as I could. I don't care if it was Phoenix, Arizona summers and it was 1.30 outside. I was still free. <laughs> so there's a waiting that can happen in dread, but I want to be clear, that's not the kind of waiting Jesus is talking about for us here. 
it's a waiting that is characterized, that is full of yearning, longing. It's, um, to give you analogies on this side of things, it's the waiting of a, you know, like a, like a bride, uh, like a bridegroom waits for the appearance of his bride behind the chapel doors as she's going to walk down the altar, right? Like, that also might feel like an hour. When is she going to come? You know, the 30 seconds. But this isn't a waiting in dread anymore. It's a waiting in, in yearning. Or it may be like uh, waiting, like my, like my kids will wait for grandma and grandpa to show up out by the window. You know, they just like literally set up chairs and just wait by the window. You know, like everyone else walking by thinks they're crazy. We're crazy. Like, what are those kids doing? But they're waiting for grandma and grandpa. They're yearning. They're excited. Or fresh example in my mind, it, it's like uh, children waiting through the month of December for Christmas Day. Right? I don't know if you guys do this. Um, we did this when I was a kid. Now my kids do it. You, know, you make those paper chains uh, so that you kind of break one off each day. So you maybe got 25 or anything in the month of December. You break one off each day. You're like, oh my gosh, we got that many days left. This is horrible. But then you keep going. And all of that is expressing this longing. And quite frankly, I imagine the reason those things got invented is because parents got so tired of their kids going, how many days till Christmas? How many? Like, look, we're going to build a chain. You can count them yourself. But they ask because they're yearning, because they're excited, because they're longing for the arrival of that day. In this waiting, there is yearning. And um, we need to, I think, therefore, step back because I think Jesus is saying, listen, that's the sort of thing we ought to have for him. It's the same sort of thing that his disciples ought to have for him. And here is the question, really, that we need to ask. Is anyone in this room waiting for the return of Jesus like this? Like, metaphorically speaking, do you have a, a paper chain that you've made? You're pulling one off every day going, man, Jesus is today the day. I get it. We don't know the day or the hour, so don't make a paper chain. Don't say I told you to do that. But you get the idea. There's a longing. There's a waiting for. There's an anticipation of his arrival. I mean, what a great day it's going to be. Like a kid for Christmas. Now, I suppose in answer to that question, many of us would sadly have to say, gosh, I don't think we are. I don't think we are. I don't have the yearning. Oh, sure, I'm waiting. But a lot of times it's with fist in hand, right? Like, God, when are you going to show up and make this right? What's the deal? But the yearning, I'm not so sure. The, the longing, the waiting. And so I imagine a lot of us, myself included, kind of come off of uh, some of these ideas and go, what can we do to help? What is it? How do I grow in that sort of yearning? And as I considered that, here's what I realized. I think we can actually learn from the kid longing for Christmas Day. Why? Why Why does the kid long for Christmas Day? One of my girls gets so excited about it. Because they know something of the goodness of it, right? Like Levi, was he excited for Christmas Day? No! 
Because he didn't know. Was he asking through the month of December? Hey, no, because he's really just first getting to experience what it's like. He's too little. But my girls have have gone through enough Christmas days to know how great it is. And so there's this yearning because they know that. That they're excited for the presents under the tree and the hot cocoa and the happy music and the family gatherings and all these things come together. And so that, knowing that, brings this yearning, this longing for it. And I think one of the reasons why we don't long for the return of Jesus it's because, kind of like my littlest one, Levi, we, we don't yet fully have a sense of what is coming for us there. And while there are um, many ways I could try to help us kind of stir our affections, our longings for this, and help us kind of see the goodness that awaits us on the day Jesus returns, I actually figure we could just read on in our text, because Jesus is going to talk about it. He's going to talk a little bit about what that day will be like for us. And my hope is it stirs some of that yearning in us. Verse 37, he says this, Blessed are those servants whom the Master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come. And serve them. Did you hear that? I want you to catch it. This verse gets no press. I've studied the Bible now for many, many years. I don't remember this verse. We talk all all about John 3.16 and all these other wonderful verses. This one gets no press. And I'm looking at this and I'm going, this is insane. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? In verses 35 and 36, we are told, you and I are told, to dress ourselves and be ready for action and be ready to serve Him, right? Dress yourselves, be ready to serve. Wait for Him. But then he shows up on the scene and verse 37, what do we see? But that he is going to dress himself for action, turn around and serve us. You've got to understand, masters don't serve their servants. That's why you're called servants. You serve me. So what in the world is happening in verse 37 where God, where Jesus says, man, this day is going to be amazing. I am going to return and here's how it's going to look. You're going to put grapes in my mouth. You're going to massage my feet. You're going to get that kink out of my back. No. I'm going to sit you around my table. I'm going to serve you. This is why we flip to the last chapters of Revelation and we see how Jesus' return is going to play out for us. The Bible talks about it like a banquet, you guys. our, our, Our master turns host and he throws a party for you and I. I should say before he does that, we we read about how he's going to wipe away every tear. 
How he's going to make every wrong right. How he's going to wash away all the filth that you know is there. All the sin, all the junk. He put garments on us that we don't deserve because of Jesus. White as snow. He's going to throw a party. And he's going to serve us in love. And you are going to stand there not, okay, good, finally someone gets it. No, you are going to be, how did I ever get to be a part of this gig? What am I doing here? What an amazing thing. When I was thinking of this, I was thinking about like, give you a modern kind of example. Of, even It's going to come up way short, but you've seen those guys in the airport, right, where they're kind of the shoe shiner guys. You seen those dudes? I've always kind of wanted to be one of the guys in the chair. It seems like a place of luxury. It seems kind of, okay, nice. I'm a big executive businessman, whatever. They're always the guys with the fancy shoes, the nice suits. They're on the cell phone because everybody needs to talk to them. They're that important or whatever. But I want you to catch what Jesus is saying here. It would be essentially like walking you know, through the airport and you notice something crazy, something strange going on. Here's a man with his cell phones ringing. He's super important. He's got all sorts of things going on. He drops you know, all this money to get this, uh, his shoes shined or whatever it may be. But then before it comes time for him to step up into the sea, he says, no, no, no. To the, to the little humble old, old, old you know, shoe shiner guy, he says, no, no. How are you getting the seat? And you watch this guy in his suit, you watch this guy with all of his duds, looking all good, whatever. Get down on his hands and knees and start washing a guy's shoes who perhaps have never been washed. You say, what in the world is that? Well, I'll tell you what that is. That's a picture of our God in Jesus and what he's done. It's a picture of our Savior and his work for us on the cross. It's a picture of what he's come to do and what he's going to do. One, one common... Um, one commentator uh, remarking on this, this whole image Jesus invokes in our text uh, says this, Any master who finds his servants in such a state of readiness is pleased, no doubt. This, this one, and Jesus' parable here, is so pleased that he reverses the normal roles and has them sit at table while he serves them a meal. This unexpected twist cannot be taken from life. What he means by that is there is no parallel for this kind of craziness in either the ancient or the modern world. This isn't what masters do. This idea that Jesus gives here would have... Would have have the, the disciples in awe, troubled even. What in the world is this? And he goes on and says, the reward of God's people is never commonplace. It is always the unexpected. Now, I will at least say this, and I've already kind of alluded to it. On the one hand, certainly I agree with the scholar that this uh, idea of Jesus flipping the tables on us and serving his servants is unexpected, but in another, in another sense, when we really read the whole of Scripture and we come to see who Jesus is and what He's come to do, don't you actually start to come to expect this? Like for the Christian who starts to get to know the mercy heart of our God and then the expression of that in His Son and the sending of His Son, don't we actually, even though we shouldn't and it is unexpected, don't we start to expect it? Doesn't it naturally flow from the kind of life that Jesus lived from the very beginning? Doesn't how he's going to treat us at the end naturally follow from how he's treated us from the very beginning? 
You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. This is Mark 10, 42. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servants. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And here it is, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came. Why did the Son of Man come? Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's unexpected that he would flip the table on us and serve us at the end of time like this. But in another sense, it naturally follows from the very reason he's come in the first place. To lay his life down. It follows from the life he lived and the death he died. It's all been in service of us. Ransom for sinners. Now I'll tell you, if you spend some time with that kind of God, with that Savior, if you let that settle into your heart, if you let Him love you in those places, you feel you're unlovable. You let Him serve you even though you know you don't belong. Even today, you come to the table of, and partake, partake of communion. You do that. You receive that, this by faith. I'll tell you what, you want to know what happened? You'll start yearning. You'll start longing for Him and His return. And all that He's promised to do and complete for us on that day. Now, third then, so we've seen it's necessity with regard to this waiting for the Lord. It's necessity. It's yearning. Now I want to look at this idea of its activity. It's activity. Um, What we come to realize is that our waiting is not only full of a longing and a hope, it's also full of a sort of energy. It's full of a sort of uh, activity. It's marked by notable activity. Um, One of the things that we need to make clear when we think of waiting, we might have in our minds this idea like my kids at the window sitting, looking, right? We might have this idea, okay, we know from Scripture, Jesus says somehow or other, he's going to come back on the clouds of heaven. Therefore, get your lawn chairs. We're heading out to the front yard. Crack open your beverage of choice. We're going to sit back and look up at the clouds. This is what Jesus asked us to do. I'm waiting. I'm longing for it. Here I am. But when we look a little closer at our text, what we realize is that Jesus is saying this waiting is marked by a kind of activity. Not just sitting, but an energy. You get a hint of that there in verse 35 when he says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. There's a sort of energy there, but even still, because we're in parable and metaphor, we kind of go, what does that mean? In the Greek, it's this idea of girding your, you know, staying dressed for actions like this idea of girding your waist, pulling your kind of robe that they would wear up and tucking it in so you're ready to move and uh, that sort of thing. Almost like maybe you when you kind of put on your gear if you're going to go running or my mom back in the day when she'd do jazz, you knew when she was going to do jazzercise because she had that, you know, unitard on, walking proud. Say, so, oh my, there she, she's going to go do some work. That's the idea he's saying, man, there's something going on. There's an energy here, but we're still kind of going, what does that look like? 
I think he fills it out for us a little bit more in verse 42. Admittedly, we're still in parable here, but it starts to make more sense what this waiting with activity might be. In this verse, Jesus likens us to managers in one way or another whom the Lord has put in his service, okay? Like managers of his household. And, And he says, listen, Our job is to care for those whom he has given us and to, here it is there, verse 42, give them their portion of food at the proper time. I saw that and I thought, wow, interesting. So part of what it means to wait isn't just sitting by the window and yearning. It's, It's faithful obedience to him. It's self-sacrificial service of those whom he has put in our path, whom he has put under our care. Give them their portion of food. It's being faithful to all that God has, has, has called us to do in love for him and in love for others. It's not sitting by the window. It's, it's, it's getting down with Jesus on the floor and washing feet. It's not sitting in a lawn chair. It's it's giving food to the hungry and and binding up the broken and caring for those God has put alongside us and under us. It's love. Two greatest commandments, love for him, love for others. It's actively engaging in love. If Jesus came back, if that master came back, found his servants that just <laughs> been sitting on there, I'm waiting for you, that wouldn't have gone well for him. He was actively serving, being faithful, obedient, in love. So here really we are put to the test, I think, are we not? It, it, I, I, it's uncomfortable enough, I imagine, to ask ourselves, are we yearning for the return of Jesus? I think that question alone is like, oh, I don't know where I'm at with that. God, help me. But perhaps we're able to kind of wiggle, out, wiggle our way out of that and go, yeah, yeah, I'm here. I am. I long for that. Heaven sounds good. I want Jesus. But then we come to this, we go, oh, no. Because if I'm truly waiting, I will be yearning. And if I'm truly waiting and yearning, I will be actively serving. There will be transformation in my life and I will be living in light of that future hope in the way that I'm laying down my life in love for God and others now. That starts to get real for a moment because he's saying there's an outward evidence of it. Your hope in heaven and his return should be evidenced here in the way you hold yourself on earth. So this perhaps is a time for us to take inventory of our relationships, even now. How are you oriented towards other people? Are you serving, giving, caring, pouring out? Or are you turning these relationships towards yourself? Are you, in fact, kind of turning things around to serve you, enlisting people in your service? That's where Jesus is going to go next. He's going to talk about how, we'll see it there, verse 45, I'll look at it in a moment. He's going to talk about how, man, when we kind of give up on the waiting, when we kind of start going, ah, I don't know, I'm not really hoping in that anymore, I'm going to start doing here. You want to know what happens? We start living for the here and now. And if you're living for the here and now, 
self-sacrificial love, caring for those under you, loving people to your own hurt, makes no sense. If all you have is this life, if it's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die, then you put all your chips here, then it's, man, i got to get everyone else to serve me, and if I have to sacrifice you, I will. It's no longer, hey, me sacrifice in love for you. It's you sacrifice in love for me. And we kind of do this flip. We make this switch. When we stop waiting, we stop yearning, we stop longing for that trusting in His arrival. Things shift in our relationships and we become exploitative, abusive, selfish, devouring. This is what you see there, verse 45, as Jesus talks about it. He's talking about that servant who says to himself, My master is delayed in coming. And so he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. Do you catch that? It's not give them their portion of food, faithful obedience and love. It's, hey, if he isn't coming, if he's not showing up, I want to be king. Little kids are crazy because they're just so honest. This was amazing. (laughs) Chloe goes to uh, this little group called American Heritage Girls. And in it, they're doing this little, I don't remember whether they're playing a game or something. And this one girl wins. And Chloe really wants to be this girl's friend and has struggled because she can sometimes be not very nice. And um, (laughs) this girl wins the the game. and, And... This is what she says. Anyone who wants to be my friend must bow down to me. (laughs) Chloe bowed down. I was like, no. Chloe came home and made her a crown. I was like, no. Oh, gosh. Let me talk to this girl. No. But she's honest. Kids are honest. Let me tell you something. This is what, you you don't have hope in Jesus. You're not hoping in his return or worried about accountability to a master who is over you. That is the move you're making. Praise me, see me, worship me, bow down to me, let me be king. You would never say it, or maybe you would, I don't know. But you would probably never say it. But in your heart, you're longing for it. You're working towards it. Everyone else exists for you. That's the move that happens. That's the shift when we give out this idea of a coming king. And we start living for the here and now. Feed, eat, drink, they says. Feed my belly. Beat you guys if you don't serve me. Interesting. Um... It was really interesting this last week. I, I listened to a podcast by Al Mohler called The Briefing. It's helpful. He kind of analyzes current uh, events through the lens of a Christian worldview. And he brought up a statistic I didn't know about. I had more here to talk on this, but I'll, I'll have to make it quick. Um, but I guess 88% of the current Congress, U.S. Congress, is uh, self-declared, at least, Christian. Um, The interesting thing is that out in America at large, I think it's only, I wrote it down, I think it's only um, 71% of Americans would self-designate as Christian. So within our government, we have 
uh, over 18%, uh, I guess it is 17% more uh, Christians, at least claiming, uh, than in America at large. Christians are overrepresented in our government. And then you flip the statistic around on the other side. All this came from the, um, the Pew Forum, the Pew Research Center. You flip it around on the other side, and it's really interesting because there's another kind of disparity where the American people at large, there is about 23% that say they are atheist or agnostic or part of the nuns. We're not affiliated with anything. We don't like God. We don't know if you can be a God. We're not really worried about it. 23%. U.S. Congress, you want to know how many, uh, what percentage there are um, that would claim that for themselves? There's only one lady. This is 0.2% of U.S. Congress would claim that. So there's an overrepresentation of Christians in Congress by about 20%. There's an underrepresentation of those who are unaffiliated and don't believe in God uh, by about 20%. And it's very Interesting when you consider maybe why that would be. I wonder if you have any idea where I'm going with this. The American people, it seemed to me, as secular as we are becoming, still seem to want our representatives, those ruling over us, to have some sense of another ruling over them. We recognize, hopefully, that those who would proclaim or declare themselves Christians aren't necessarily Christians. So no doubt there are plenty on there that are not probably actually actively following Jesus. They just say, I'm a Christian. But here's the reality that we realize from this. It's actually important to their political career that they maintain that designation, and people are hesitant to say that they don't have any affiliation with God, or they don't don't believe in God. It could be potentially political suicide to go out and say that. And that's the crazy move, is that the American people, even though we ourselves are slipping into secularism, slipping towards atheism, agnosticism, still want those who are ruling over us to have a God who is ruling over them. Because we are aware of what man is capable of when he's just free. When there's no accountability, when there's no belief in absolute morality or a God who is coming, who will hold them to what they do and maintain justice if they, if, if they, if they bend it or twist it. Make it right. We recognize that man unleashed like that, all bets are off. And in fact, it's really not all that complicated. We know what they're going to do. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. We know that if we give them that sort of power, they don't have any authority over them. They're going to twist, manipulate, exploit us. They're going to beat us and fill their bellies. So we're aware of this sort of thing, even in the way we vote. I mean, we want people representing us. We want people over us that believe in a God who is over them. Because we know if that goes, all is off. And it becomes this self-serving exercise. And we become the slave. When you stop waiting for Jesus, you start living in many ways, then it would seem like a monster. It may never be the case for us. Fourth and finally here, I want to talk about its end. Its end. 
the end of this waiting. It's really interesting to me to note the polarity in the images that Jesus gives us in our text regarding what this end, what his, his return will be like for uh, people depending on kind of their orientation towards him. For those who are waiting, which is what we've spent a lot of our time with, those who are waiting for him, longing for him, actively serving him, uh, well, his arrival, he says, is like a happy master who turns host and throws a party and gives reward. And, and as we uh, would have seen earlier in the text, actually even kind of says, hey, listen, thank you for being faithful. I'll give you more. I'll set you over more. There's like this party, this celebration, more responsibility, this reward ceremony, if you will. It's a great day. But then the opposite image is given. It's crazy for those who are not waiting, those who have given up on this idea, those who have rejected, rebelled, those who are, in fact, turning others to serve them and get their best life now. That sort of thing, for them, Jesus flips the image. And he says, my arrival is not like a happy host. It's going to be like a thief in the night. And you're going to lose everything you've been living for. Kind of like we read earlier in that parable with the guy who builds his barns and fills it all up. And then God shows up and says, what are you doing? God shows up like a thief, steals everything he was living for. Says, you can't take that with you, brother. And now you're poor with regard to me. Happy master or a thief in the night. The brightest day for some will be the darkest day for others. We've spent enough time, I think, I hope, on the positive side. There's many more things I could say on this point, but I'm going to try to drive us to a close here. Um, what I do want to talk about is, is more of this idea on the negative side, some of the harder stuff Jesus says here. I think it's important we do see what he says about those who give up waiting, those who reject him. The language if we're honest, is shocking. It is even troubling, disturbing. Um, these are the sorts of verses that um, in our weaker moments, we wish we could kind of strike out of the New Testament. Like, oh, what in the world is he talking about? It sounds kind of masochistic, sinister, wicked. What is, what is this whole thing? Like, read this with me. I bet it stuck out to you as we read it earlier, but just in case, verses 45 and 46. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, well, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. So with this, we move from some of the most wonderful expressions of the love of God for us in all the Bible to some of the most dreadful expressions of his wrath. Cut in pieces. We look at that and go, what in the world is going on? Well, let me help you understand this. There are times where getting into the original language helps, and this is one of them. The Greek word translated here, cut him in pieces, is literally dichotomeo. Okay? You hearing already our English word that comes from that? Dichotomy? It literally means to cut in two. You say, that doesn't sound any better. Let me explain. <laughs> Let me explain. We gather from this, I think, that Jesus is probably referring to the way Israel would make covenants back in the day. Um, 
covenant ratification ceremonies, here's what they would do. They would take a sacrifice. This is gruesome. This is brutal. I know. Uh, they would cut it in two. They would put the halves on either side, and the two that were entering into agreement with one another would walk through uh, those two halves. The understanding, we think, is that those two halves served as a sort of warning. That so would happen to you if you break this covenant. This is why uh, God in Jeremiah 34, 18 says to Israel, The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. In other words, I will cut them in two for their covenant unfaithfulness. I will make them like the pieces. They entered in and said, all right, very good. Yes, okay. Let it be done to me if I do something otherwise. And they failed. They neglected. They rejected. They rebelled. So what we gather from Jesus' reference to this whole kind of imagery in this text is that for those who, which is all, frankly, according to Romans 1 and other places, those who know God, those who have some sense. I mean, we're told that, that all human beings have His law written on their heart in some way. They know right or wrong. That's why you know when someone does you wrong. <laughs> Even if you're not a Christian, you know, I don't like that. How'd you know that? Law's on your heart. We're told that we know God. We know that there's someone we give an account to. We know that there are laws over us. We know that our our, our lives ought to be lived in light of that, and yet there are those who do not care. Reject it, rebel, I don't care. I want to live for the here and now. I want to live for me. Jesus says, for those, I will cut them in two. I will treat them like covenant breakers. Now, it cannot go without being mentioned, brothers and sisters, I think, that this penalty for covenant unfaithfulness is no doubt the very penalty that Jesus quite literally experiences for us on the cross. What is he experiencing there but the covenant curse? What is he experiencing there but almost literally being cut in two? Though he was faithful to his father, though he always lived with waiting, longing, humble service with reverence to his father and others, he was treated like you and I deserve for our covenant unfaithfulness. He was treated like those pieces broken aside. He was the sacrifice for us. If you find yourself stirred a bit in conscience, go, man, I haven't been waiting. I haven't been yearning. I haven't been living actively for Jesus. The place to begin isn't with a, uh, to make some sort of resolution. The place to begin is actually to receive afresh what Jesus has done, or perhaps for the first time. I mean, you've got to understand what Jesus is doing there. What we recognize is that God does not desire 
God does not take a sick pleasure in judging. He is reluctant. That's the point of the cross. He doesn't go, man, let me get to him so I can cut him in two. Can't wait. He says, I'll cut my son in two before I cut you. Jesus is holding back our judgment day. You could see it there on the cross. And he's calling to us. He said, come, receive. Listen, I know you're not waiting the way that you are. I know you're not yearning the way that you are. I know you're not living the way that you are. But come to me. I'll cover it. I'll give you my spirit. I'll help. And I'll keep you. I'll change you from the inside out. There's this text, and this is where we'll leave. Um, we'll end. Um, there's this text at the beginning of 1 Corinthians that I think is wonderful on this point, where, where, where God talks about, or Paul is really mentioning how God is going to keep those who are in Jesus to the end. And I want to read you this, not because um, I, I want to undermine or minimize the warnings about waiting and all these things that we find in our text here this morning. No, because I want to reassure you that as we, re, as we repent, as we turn, as we receive the only one who could stay faithful to the end, he will keep us. He will help us. He will cover our failures and he will uh, enable our faithfulness. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear this. Declared over your life, Christian. God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. God, we recognize that your judgment. While impending, while terrifying. While in some sense motivation. For us. We recognize that you have taken it in Jesus. We recognize that we don't stand a chance of waiting perfectly, of yearning for you alone without any, any mix of affection for other idols and earthly things, of living self-sacrificially. We recognize because we fail every day. And Lord, yet here we read that you will keep us guiltless. How? Because you took our covenant unfaithfulness yourself. God, I pray you will exact justice and judgment. You will make things right. For those who receive you, you've made it right. You've exacted justice in your son on the cross. But for those who reject you, you will make things right. You will exact justice from them on that day. So God, I pray let your Christian let your Christian people in this room press in deeper to the cross this morning and let those who have thought it was just a joke or a fairy tale or something not worthy of their attention, let them fall. Repent and receive. 
Let them too, even in these moments, experience the turn of the table. As you, as you, their master whom they've offended and rebelled against for so long, dress yourself to serve them, wash them, feed them, call them into your family and keep them to the end. In your name I ask these things. Amen.